Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Hi, this is Mark Graben. Welcome to episode 208 of the podcast for September 9th, 2014. Joining me today is Michael Bremer. He's the author of the recently released ebook, How to Do a Gimbal Walk. Michael is the president of the Cumberland Group, a business improvement consulting firm based in Illinois. So in today's episode, we're going to be talking about Michael's book, um, talking about different types of gimbal walks, key behaviors that need to be exhibited by leaders, and why it's critically important to build trust and credibility over time in the workplace for any of this to be effective within the context of lean manufacturing or lean healthcare or lean management principles in any industry. Uh, so to find a link to, to Michael, to his book, to his firm, and more information, you can go to leanblog.org slash 208. Thanks for listening. Michael, hey, thanks for being a guest on the podcast today. Mark, thank you very much for inviting me to do this. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, so am I. I'm really happy to talk about your book. I, uh, thanks to you for letting me read uh, an early copy of it. And I think it, you know, fills a really important um, need in the market to to get into detail about doing a gimbal walk. Um, this is something a, a lot of people ask me about. Um, something I don't even cover in, in great depth in in the book Lean Hospitals. So um, I'm happy you've written this. Uh, before we get into the details of the book, can you introduce yourself and some of your background? Introduce yourself to the listeners. Uh, sure. Michael Bremer. Uh, I've got a pretty eclectic background. I worked for a Fortune 30 company years ago, many years ago. It no longer exists, but it's not my fault. But when I was doing that, I was exposed to a person that we were talking about before we started the formal interview, uh, Dr. Dimming. And I was responsible for creating a company-wide improvement effort for a company called Beatrice Foods. And in doing that work, it really sometimes you would you would see the results of your effort and it would be pretty amazing what happened and beatrice ended up being purchased by colbert kravis then when that happened i ended up i had never thought about being a consultant ever in my life but i became an independent consultant and then in the early 90s uh, one of the people that was a mentor to me in creating the improvement effort at beatrice was a fellow named pete trepanier and he had led the improvement effort at arnco steel in 1991, they left and became independent, and Pete asked me to join his group, and we created an office for Cumberland here in Chicago that I've managed since then. And largely what we do is the things that you're very familiar with, Mark. We work with organizations. I think the simplest way to say it is to elevate the maturity of their improvement activities. Mm -hmm. So what led to let's, – let's I want to come back later and talk about – some of your experiences with um, Dr. Deming, but um, let's talk about the book first. And I'm always curious to hear the story of, of how a book came to be before we, we, we dive into some of the details and the tips and lessons about doing gimbal walks. Um, what, what led you to choose this as uh, something to, to write about? Well, in this instance, it was very practical. I, th I think sometimes when we do these books, you, you want to change the world with this message that you'd like to, to send out there that you think is going to help people do better. With this particular one, I spend a fair amount of time doing volunteer activities for the Association of Manufacturing Excellence. I'm actually in charge of uh, their awards program for manufacturing excellence. And my partner, Brian, and I, maybe a year and a half ago, 
we were going to do a workshop here in Chicago on how to do a gimbal walk. Uh, and there was a company that wanted to host it. And Brian and I were kind of excited about it. And so I started looking around to find some public material that we could use to give to people in the workshop on how to do the walk. And I could find absolutely nothing. There was a lot of general information um, that, that, that's out there. There were a lot of things that talked about why you should do a gimbal walk. That, and and those, were, those were very well done. But there wasn't anything I could find on, on how to. And so we cobbled together some documents for people in the workshop and it worked really, it worked reasonably well. But then I decided that I was going to do my first ebook on this subject and put it out there. As far as a little bit more background, when you say your first ebook, you, you've authored or, or been part of the team for some other books previously that were traditionally published, right? That is, that, that's correct. The um, first book, we had a relationship with Motorola for about seven, seven years and the fellow that was my mentor at Motorola was a guy by the name of Tom McCarty, who was in charge of their of working with their suppliers and customers on implementing Six Sigma. And in the, I guess, late 90s, early 2000s, uh, Tom wanted to link Six Sigma and Lean. He was one of the first people to really try doing that in a big way that, that I was aware of. And so I came in as the Lean guy uh, to start doing that. And we wrote a book called the Six Sigma Black Belt Handbook which talked about motor, what Motorola was doing and the things that were in that book um, that talked about lean were the chapters that I wrote. And it was funny because that was, that was the first book I'd ever written. And the editor at McGraw-Hill liked it and said, well, there's this chapter that you wrote in there about difficulties that company have, difficulties company have in making these things work. Would you like to write a book on that? And so I said, well, sure, why not? So I wrote the second book that I wanted to call, I had a million dollars in savings, but my PL didn't change. But McGraw-Hill ended up calling it Six Sigma Financial Tracking and Reporting. So you can imagine how many we sold. That's a little drier title. Yeah. <laughs> and in that, but as I wrote that book, I was now the lead author. I was really responsible for the content. And I started to get a pretty good picture in my mind of the issues that organizations face as they try to do this. But my wife, Lynn, said that if you write another book, I'm going to divorce you. And she's an important part of my life. So I let it go for about four years. And then the last traditional book that we wrote is now titled Escape the Improvement Trap. And it's on that subject of organizations. I mean, really, when you think about it, the way that company A improves in, in any industry really isn't all that different from the way company B and that same industry improves. They both go about it in a very similar way. And so the end result of their improvement activities is they both got better and competitively nothing changed. And in that book, we tried to explain that conundrum and what we felt that the most effective organizations were doing differently. So let's um, come back and talk about how to do a gimbal walk. Um, I'm, I'm curious if, um you had the opportunity to just to introduce the idea of a gimbal walk to a plant manager. Um, I don't know if, if maybe I'm asking in an indirect way who the book is targeted to, but um, if, if you could describe at least in your mind, you know, who, who the target audience is and how you would explain a gimbal walk to them, sort of uh, why it's important and what it is. How, how would you address that? Well, they're, they're, they're number one, I think there are different types of, of gimbal walks, and we do try to address that a little bit in the book, although there's, they're sort of scaled. I mean, if I'm 
I'm going through a similar set of steps. If I'm doing it as a first line supervisor, as a plan manager, I'm coming in as a visiting executive, excuse me, if I'm coming in as a visiting executive, it would be a little bit different. But I think they do two very powerful things. And this is what we tried to impart in the book to any of those, to any of those walkers. That the first thing is to really to help the walker become more in touch with reality. I'm certain this next thing I'm going to say won't surprise anybody, but we often forget it. Most leaders' assumptions about what's happening on a day-to-day basis relative to going on inside their company really doesn't align with what's actually taking place. And so that, that tendency to think that everybody's operating from the same logic model, which is my model, I, th- I think everybody else is thinking the same way. Well, when you go in there and you really start to see what's happening, you, you can learn that, that your model isn't the only model inside the organization. And in fact, some very different things are happening uh, from what you thought was taking place. And so just becoming aware of, of the current reality, if you did nothing else, I mean, you could ignore the entire rest of the book. If you just did a better job of getting in touch with reality, obviously you could do a better job of managing and a better job of leading. I think the second key thing that takes place that really should permeate any type of walk is once you get that better sense of reality, you're now in a position of where you can teach and coach your work associates. And I think the key thing that you want to be doing there is developing more critical thinking skills, um, which I'd say should be the primary purpose of any Gimba walk, whether I'm a first line supervisor or the outside executive. It's not that I want to go discover problems and take responsibility for fixing them. Really what I want to do is get more people inside my business uh, developing that capability. Yeah, to help develop those skills in others. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, you know, back back to your first point about getting in touch with the current reality. I, I think that's an incredibly important lesson uh, for my listeners here who work in healthcare. You know, I've worked with a, a number of, uh, and it's not just senior leaders, but sometimes it's department managers. When you take them to the Gemba, and not just to go and say hi and shake hands, but to really go and observe the work, it's always just incredibly eye-opening, where it just blows away all sorts of assumptions they might have had about how smoothly things normally worked or what the causes of, of problems might be. Um, it, it's, you know, it, it often seems humbling, where, where you, know, you get somebody to really just observe and see some of the, the problems or the waste or the stress that, that really happen uh, on a daily basis. Uh, it's incredibly eye-opening, and and I think you know, we'd we'd probably be in agreement that that understanding is often really kind of the first step or phase in in any sort of improvement, right? Well, it it is because you 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 to 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 believe that something needs to improve, you need improve. You need to believe there's a gap, and so going and seeing that, and you know, all organizations, healthcare organizations, maybe even more so than manufacturing companies. We have all these rules that people are supposed to follow for doing things. And these rules are all passed for a reason. Some problem came up or perhaps there's a legal requirement. Um, it's a good medical practice. I mean, there's, there's tons of these rules that, that, that get written, get distributed, and people are supposed to practice. What we don't realize is sometimes these rules conflict, that um, sometimes the way that a policy is written and the way the policy has been interpreted by the people that are doing the work, it, 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 it increases the burden on them trying to get their, their documentation done. The, the whole thing of, um, you know, as you've gone in and done some of the lean work with hospitals, I'm sure you've seen, 
this idea of, uh, of not letting anybody know who the patient's name are that's in here in terms of privacy rights, but then having people that are delivering the healthcare know what patients are, are in queue, what is happening with patients, are they being, are they being serviced, are they being taken care of properly? If, if that information is all secretive, it makes it difficult for the other people to be able to execute their work. And so what you need to do when you get in touch with this reality is go in there and find a more appropriate balance of what it is that you're trying to accomplish and get the rules to the, – the rules probably have a good intent, but can we change this in a way that it makes more sense for what it is we're trying to accomplish? And I'm not optimizing the rule for just one functional group's uh, perspective of it. So can, can what's an example? Can you use an example to kind of illustrate what you're talking about there? Well, there was a – it's a slightly different, but I think it was such a great story. Uh, a friend of mine used to work for a large Fortune thir- Fortune 10 company, actually. A uh, very successful global business. This is a business that had, had done a lot of uh, lean and, and Six Sigma activities. And they're, they're learning how to do gimbal walks as they're going through the manufacturing plant where he works. His first name is Dan. And Dan is teaching the executives on how to do a gimbal walk, and they're going through, and they're they're doing in the production process. They're doing at least two walks a day um, through there to see what's going on. And one of the things they come up to is somebody's grinding. Uh, let's just call it a coupler, without getting into too specific of a description of what the the uh, device is. But it's going to, it's going to couple things together. And when they're looking at the tack time, uh, they they production pace that the operator is supposed to be following that they they can see that they're getting behind and so they ask the person that's working on the coupler well what are you doing and the person looks at the walkers and says well i'm grinding this coupler and anybody that's been in manufacturing anytime you have to grind stuff you know that's automatically a, a non-value adding activity we like to make going away and so why are you grinding the coupler and they get, get sort of a, a fuzzy answer and so one of the first questions they ask is, well, why didn't it, why, excuse me, why didn't it fit? And, and so then they go away and they're going to come back and take a look at it uh, again for a second time when they come back. And I won't go through all of the steps of this. They, they, find, they find another kind of half-hearted response to this second why. And finally, they, they've come back to this one workstation four times. And when they get back there the fourth time, what they find are that the job activity is working from drawings that are 40 years old and that every once in a while you get a, what's called a tolerance stack up. So the thing that's being coupled in the coupler, if they started to get to the outer limits of acceptability, they're still within the quality guidelines. But if one is, um, is the, the band is too narrow and the other one, the band is too wide uh, on what they're doing, it, they don't fit. And then they were doing this grinding process to make it fit. Well, you had this this thing that happened maybe 40 years ago when uh, an operator couldn't make a part fit, and and then they would grind it to to make it fit. The um, the drawings were never adjusted to to correct the process. The standard work was never made to work. They're always doing a workaround whenever this problem happens. And finally, when this came to light, I mean, the fix is very easy. Let's go back. Let let's fix the drawings so these things are all done done to scale. Um, let's set it up so that the tack time can be met. But the thing that they started to do was just to make the problems more visible, uh, I think make the operators more comfortable with coming forward and saying there's an issue that's here. The, the process, the way that you designed it didn't work the way we thought it would. What can we do about it? And so very often, whether it's in healthcare or manufacturing, you'll, you'll find these examples of people working hard to do the right thing. 
uh, but having difficulty making it happen. Well, and it sounds like you know that that phrase you just used. The process didn't work as designed. The ability to actually see that and address it, as opposed to driving that problem beneath the surface. A lot of times, people are just left to flounder to deal with the bad process or the bad layout. The people who can actually help them with that are kind of, you know they they are left on the other side of a gap, a different sort of gap than a problem gap, where they just. I've seen this in a lot of organizations. The leaders aren't aware of the problem. Frontline staff say, hey, we've tried bringing it up and you're not listening. And you know, just nobody really understands the genesis of the gap. But it seems like a lot of this gets addressed through lead, not just leadership visibility, but doing good gimbal walks and, and seeing and listening, right? Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. It, the, this particular problem didn't come up as a result of a gimbal walk, but it's that idea of getting in touch with reality. It, and it's a story that Stephen Spear uh, used in his high velocity book, the uh, where he talked about the uh, patient was in the hospital. The patient ended up dying, uh, and when they came into the hospital, this wasn't something that you should die from. The um, what they were doing there to get in touch with reality is when a problem happened, and obviously a death in healthcare institution is a problem. They would swarm the problem so that you had several physicians, you had an administrator. There, uh, there was the, I think the head of nursing. Several people came to when an issue uh, would arise and they're looking, trying to figure out why this woman died. And as they're going through and looking at the protocols and trying to figure out what's going on, somebody happens to look in the wastebasket in the room and they see a vial of medication that, that shouldn't have been in the room with that woman. It was a vial that should not have been administered to her. And when they go back and trace the issue, again, getting in touch with reality, what they find are there were several different medications on the nurse's cart that were all visually very, very similar. It's very similar labels, similar colors. And the nurse, when this particular thing was done, there was an emergency that came up down the hallway. They were under pressure to get it done quickly, administered the wrong thing. And so just with that idea of better understanding reality, in, in this sense, it took something extreme for people to see it. But at least they did. They did see it. They didn't hide the problem. They were very open with the patient's family about what had transpired and that I don't think they were sued after it was all over. People were happy they were fixing the problem. They, um, and they were able to redesign the cart so that it's easier to see. If I could observe that also through a gimbal walk, if I'm doing that, I'm looking at what the nurse is doing, if they're starting to fumble trying to find something on their cart, that that would be an alert. That should be an alert to an observant gimbal walker that maybe this isn't as easy to do as we thought it was. So, you know, looking at some of the things covered in the book, um, they've already kind of touched on um, understanding the process, um, seeing the current reality. You, you talk about clarifying purpose. One, one other thing I'd like to delve into a little bit here is the idea of uh, engaging people. How, if you have some ideas or thoughts about how leaders, uh, you know, kind of properly engage people in the course of doing a gimbal walk? What behaviors would you expect to see? What would you recommend? You know, it's not just a matter of walking through the department and seeing, but actually talking with people. What, what do you recommend? Well, the, we spend a lot of time on that aspect of it. And the, the, the first thing that the leader needs to make certain they're doing is they're, they're listening more than they're talking. Um, and if you've got, as you're doing the walk, I would even assign somebody as you are an earlier walker to, to make certain that we're operating that way, that somebody's watching who's, who's doing most of the talking. Because sometimes in trying to teach, 
and in your enthusiasm for what you're doing, the leaders talk too much, asking open-ended questions. So at the very beginning, I mean, going back to that basic five whys uh, that's talked about in the Toyota model of getting to a, a simple way to try to get to a root cause, just going and asking very short questions to people, well, why are you doing this? Uh, what, what is the target that you're trying to accomplish? How are you progressing toward that target? And then being quiet and giving the people an opportunity to respond and explain what's really going on in their life, you, you, you can get some amazing insights uh, as, as to what is happening. Yeah, and, and I think some of those details um, are important, such as you know, open-ended questions. Don't ask questions that can be answered with a yes or a no. Because I think sometimes if, if there's not a lot of trust built up, people are scared, they're just like, oh, I want the boss to move on. <laughs> Continue your gimbal, go gimbal walk in that direction away away from us. Um, you know, open-ended questions just in general are certainly a good way of um, really getting good dialogue. Um, but on, on that topic of, of trust, I'm curious what your thoughts are of what leaders can do, how to get started if maybe there isn't a lot of trust that that's you know currently there in the workplace. What can leaders do to not just scare people with their presence in the Gemba? Well, I mean, obviously, you, I mean, most organizations, there's not a lot of trust because people have been burned in the past. <laughs> and so the safest thing is just to lie low and, you know, wait for these things to pass and, and stay out of trouble and don't cause trouble for anybody else. So I think absolutely early on as an organization starts to do this, one of the key things that you need to focus on is building that trust. And the, the simplest way to do it is the you, you, you've got to do a good job of keeping track of what's taking place in the discussion. And if you go through and you do this, you are, you are, it, it's, it's going to be very easy to find issues. Um, it, it just will not be a problem at all in doing it. The, the way that you talk to those issues, um, this same friend, Dan, had, um, I think one of the things he stressed, and I have this quote in, in the book from Dan, is it, there is this tendency in, in Western culture more so than particular aspect of the way that Asia operates, although Asia is not perfect. But in the Western culture, there is a tendency to find out who is to blame. And so you should never, ever do a walk where you're looking for the who's, but you should always be focusing on the why's. Yeah, right. <laughs> and, and so as you're going through with those questions, if you start to look like you're trying to find out who caused this problem, you'll kill the whole process. Right. And if you start asking why and trying to understand that, and then the key thing in the first several walks that get done is the you, we, we do something to address some of the, the issues that are being discussed. Because if we've gone through and we've done this and then nothing at all happens, you lose it. I think the other thing that's important for a first-time walker is to realize that your first walk is just one walk. You are not going to change the world in this walk. It doesn't matter what you discover. And, and you need to realize that this is, a, this is the first pass in a series of things that, this that you're going to be doing. And what the walker is really doing is I'm building credibility and I'm earning the right for you to trust me and to be more open with me as time goes by. And if the walks are pursued from that spirit of I'm not trying to get it all done now, I'm not trying to discover everything that's going wrong, but I'm, I'm looking to begin a dialogue you 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 can accomplish a tremendous amount. It, 
most people, when they, they embark down these things, the idea is that I read this book, I had this great consultant, we're going to go and we're going to do this improvement thing and life is going to be wonderful. Like it's Certain a project, things. like it's yeah. a fast thing. Well, right? yeah. but the elite companies, the thing that's so amazing to me about those that are elite is the discipline they have for just continuing the journey and doing it over and over and over again and getting better and better at what it is that they do. Um, and I, I agree. I think you raise a good point that that trust can only be built over time and, and, and through kind of consistent practice. Um, thinking back to, you know, that consistency and, and I know there's probably no easy formulaic answer, but generally speaking, you know, for a frontline manager, how many Gemba walks would, would you recommend that they're doing per day or per week and how much time a good gimbal walk takes? What, what are some of your guidelines maybe just first off for frontline supervisors or managers? Well, the, come back to the, directly to the question that you asked, but for the first line supervisor, one of the problems with, with, with process improvement, one of the problems with improvement for a first line supervisor is there's so much variability in the way work gets done on a day-to-day -day basis. There really isn't standard work. There might be very documented procedures on how work, is to be done, but the day shift does it differently from the night shift. And this is just as true in healthcare as it is in manufacturing, maybe even more so because of the service nature of what's happening in healthcare. And so there's a phenomenal amount of variation that, 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 that's going place. And so my own guidance to somebody that's just starting to do gimbal walks is I would really be focusing on how well do we practice standard work within our organization? Do people understand what it is? Do we really have a best practice? Far, far making work happen. And usually you're going to find that you don't. You've got a number of people that are working their hardest to do it in the way that they think is the best. And so focusing on decreasing the variation that takes place within your process and then trying to stabilize that because then it's going to be easier to improve it. The, the problem with improving a process that's not stable, and we talk about different types of, we give two examples of doing a gimbal walk in a stable process and an unstable process. The, when the process is unstable, you really don't reliably know what the impact is of the improvement that you're going to do because it might be done differently the next time. And I would, I would encourage somebody that's a first-line supervisor to do at least, at least three walks a day. You, 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 do, a, you do a morning walk uh, to come in and see what's going on. That walk might be before or after um, if you're doing huddle meetings where you're bringing people together. The, um, so there, there's one that takes place very early in the morning uh, for somebody that's working during the day shift. I, I do another one midday. It could be before or just after lunch. And I do another a third one uh, at the end of the day. And, and I would focus, the only thing I would focus on at the outset is, do we really understand what standard work is and how well are we performing to our standard work? Once you begin to get that stabilized, then you can start to expand your walk for doing some other things. You say a good guideline would be for, let's say, you know, a plant manager. And I know this might depend on you know the size of the plant, but you know somebody who's kind of a senior site leader. How often are they doing gimbal walks, and how are those different than a frontline manager's gimbal walks? The um, the frontline manager is going to be not only looking at what's going on with the people that are doing the work, but they should be really be starting to take into account what do I need to do as a plant manager for for coaching my subordinates on what it is that's going on and seeing what's happening. So they're, 
they've, they've got multiple things that it is they need to be looking at. Um, the, as, they're, as they are visiting the Gimba and going to see what it is that's going on, the, um, they, they can be talking directly to the people that are doing the work. Uh, another way for them to be doing it would be to talking to the, to the local leader, uh, although hopefully we're always engaging some of the people that are doing the work, but just depending on where we're at that the plant manager is probably also going to be spreading their walk. So you're not, depending on how big the facility is, you might not be walking through the, um, you know, the same area uh, multiple times a day or even multiple times a week. But, but you want to make certain that you're getting good coverage around the facility uh, and seeing what the, uh, what, how, how the changes that are taking place and what is that's going on. Does that answer your question? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So um, as we start to wrap up here, and, and again, uh, the book is uh, How to Do a Gimbal Walk. It's currently available uh, through Amazon Kindle. Um, we'll, we'll come back to that. Maybe we'll – oh, shoot. We're not going to have time to talk too much about Dr. Deming. Maybe we can do another discussion about that. But the, the last question I was going to ask before we get into talking about where people can buy the book, is, is there a common mistake that you see – uh, maybe among you know, well-intended leaders, they're enthusiastic about gamble walks and, and, and they're going out there. Is, is there one mistake that you see really uh, frequently that you would try to um, steer people away from committing? Yeah, I, I think that most people, when they read about gamble walks and the why, uh, that, that it gets related to the literature, to, to the eight waste and finding waste. And so the walks that they learn to do are all about finding waste. So they're all waste walks. That that's not the only type of walk, um, and and going and looking to to find the waste. I mean, you can certainly do some coaching to your subordinates at, at, as we do this, but I think if you can elevate strategically, it, it strategically is local. I mean, so what's what if I'm the first line supervisor? What are the strategies that we're trying to accomplish? You know, in my world, not necessarily the big strategic things the overall organization is doing. But making certain that I'm doing different types of walks, I'm not locked in doing just one walk, and that it, it really isn't the waste walk. Really, the, the primary purpose of the walk should be fostering more creative thinking skills of the people that I'm interacting with. You're going to be able to accomplish a lot more o- over the long term. Whereas if we're constantly out looking for waste, and that includes the visiting very often the outside executive when it comes in, they're sort of, oh, let's see how much waste is going on here. I mean, you can do an entirely different walk if, depending on the purpose of what it is that you're doing. And so I think so going back through and thinking about the purpose of why are we doing this walk? What is it that we're hoping to accomplish? And then from an improvement perspective, you're doing some debriefing um, of a postmortem. After we've done the walk, how well did we do? Are we accomplishing the objectives that, uh, that we originally set out for? You, you, you can really elevate this to a much more effective tool. Yeah, and I think, you know, if you're starting off with an environment without a lot of trust and the employees here, the manager's coming out to look for waste, that that could be interpreted as, oh, my God, they're looking to blame us for problems, right? Because I mean, so. that's what's happened in the past, because the easiest yeah. thing to do is you go after the person that's holding the ball at the moment the problem takes place. Yeah, but, um, boy, I mean, you may talk about other types of walks. I mean, I think walks that are more along the lines of servant leadership, like, you know, doing safety walks, trying to look for problems that you can help solve, um, you know, to, to, to be um, of, of service to the employees, creating a better work environment for the employees. Those are the types of things that start building trust and building relationships that would make people want to work together with you to identify waste that affects 
customers or, or the business itself, right? Well, they really are. And, and when you dig into the real problems, and we're not the first ones to ever write about this. I think the first book that I read on, um, oh, who were those guys? There are two guys in Arizona. Their names escape me. But they wrote a book about managing the white space. <clears throat> this was in the, I think, in the early 90s. It was definitely when I was still at Beatrice Foods. And the, the big problems tend to be cross-functional because the, you get one group within the, the hospital, within the manufacturing plant, <clears throat> that the world that they understand, they're, they're, they're trying to do the right thing. And you get then some executives that if every, every department maximized what it was that they were trying to do, this gets back to actually too dimming. Then if everybody tried to optimize the, their piece of the puzzle, that, that somehow life would be great. But of course, what, what actually needs to happen is we need to work in harmony. When in the AME meeting in Toronto last year, Jim Womack did that diagram of here's all the silos and here's the cross-functional stuff that needs to happen. And we serve the customers with, you know, going across the functions. And I'm looking at this graph and I'm thinking the first time I ever saw that graph was when Dr. Deming showed it to me in, I don't know, 1985, 19, maybe, maybe 87. And, uh, and it still has not changed the world, but it's so, so true. But people, they, they, it's so much easier to measure the pieces. And I think one of the things that you can do with a gimbal walk, especially this is, this is, this is really where a plant manager can start to make a lot of difference is I can start to look at the interplay between the functions that are under my responsibility and, and what are the things that we can be doing to get more harmony across those functions. Cause it's not about optimizing every function. It's about optimizing what it is that we're trying to accomplish working together and most organizations are pretty weak on those metrics. They might have on-time delivery um, in the hospitals. They've got how long was, you know, there's much more of a focus on the, how long was the patient here? How do we process that? But as I start to look for those cross-functional um, bumps in the road uh, that happen and to address those and get my, the people that work in my organization to play nicer with one another, you can make some phenomenal change happen. Yeah, and I, I appreciate you bringing it back to Dr. Deming. Um, and I, I'm just laughing, thinking of, I, I saw a video of him just the other day, an old video talking about how inefficient the symphony is. And, and I, I laugh at this having played in symphonies and sometimes being the guy, being a percussionist, you standing in the back, waiting a really long time to hit the triangle. Yeah. That, that one correct precise time and you know traditional management would say oh you know every it, look these musicians aren't playing enough they're not playing loudly enough That's, and it's just yeah absolutely great absolutely. visuals that he created so uh well michael thank you uh, so much for talking today about gimbal walks and about the book um where can people find you and the book online um wh where would you point them well the book is pretty easy to find because right now it's only listed at amazon we went with amazon prime and the um it's they've got exclusive to it in the next 90 days, but it's how to do a gimbal walk. They, um, and so if you go to Amazon, you can pick it up. It, it sells for all the $6.99, so it's relatively inexpensive as far as books go. Uh, and the feedback that we've had um, has been the people have you know gotten a lot out of it. If somebody that's listening to this does buy a book, um, I'd appreciate your review of it, whether you liked it or whether you didn't. I mean, just uh, feedback, or you could send it to me personally. Um, you can reach me, our website is the Cumberland Group, Cum sorry, CumberlandChicago.com. So if you go to CumberlandChicago.com, that would get you to our website. And you can reach me at Michael at CumberlandChicago.com is my email address. Okay, well, great. Now I'll, I'll make sure that there's links 
to the book and to your website in the, uh, the blog post for this episode. So again, Michael Bremer, thanks so much for being our guest today. Well, thank you very much, Mark. Uh, we talked about doing this for some time. I'm glad we were able to pull it off. It was a lot of fun. Thank yeah, you. I'm glad we could do it. Thanks. Thanks for listening. This has been the Lean Blog Podcast. For lean news and commentary updated daily, visit www.leanblog.org. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, email mark at leanpodcast at gmail.com.